word. Turn with me to First Peter, First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse four. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. This is the word of the living Christ, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Living God, we pray that in this time you would bless the souls of your saints, your chosen people, your royal priests with words food for their souls. Aid us in both the preaching and in the hearing of God's word this day, we pray. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, reads this way. For you are a holy people, To the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. This, the living God, writes to the old covenant people in the rearticulation of the law found in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. Peter, the writer of our text this morning, very much picks up on this same language. A nation, a people, A chosen people called to be holy. Now that nation of Hebrews of old has given birth to a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And Peter says of them, you, church of Christ, you are the chosen generation. You have the royal priesthood. You are his special people. Just like the Jews of old were to look distinct from all the other peoples of the earth, you as his church are called to proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm wondering if you have ever heard a child or perhaps a new piano student playing somewhat timidly a tune on the piano. You know how it goes. One finger, one note at a time, perhaps not always following exactly the right beat, Maybe hitting a wrong note here and there, but nonetheless, you're able to hear that tune. And then perhaps 
you've heard elsewhere a full symphony playing the very same tune. And the colors and the timing and the notes all become clear. What the child was playing with one finger has become very, very clear and perfect as the orchestra plays it on dozens of instruments. That's really what we have happening in our text today. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we have the finger, if you will, the one note that there is going to be a people and there is going to be a priesthood and there is going to be a temple. But now First Peter plays, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on the orchestra of God's plan. It becomes full. It becomes clear. That simple tune played in Deuteronomy 7 has become a full symphony of clear praise in 1 Peter chapter 2. There are two themes in this simple melody. Two themes. They are a temple built on Christ and a people chosen by God. A temple built on Christ and a people chosen by God. Peter, playing that tune in verse 9, uses the language of Deuteronomy chapter 7, but with glorious tone. Many instruments are seen in the text. Let's look at these two themes this morning. A temple built on Christ, firstly then. A temple built on Christ. Notice what Peter does. He's come out of this theme, hasn't he? That we ought to desire the Word, the pure milk of the Word. This flows out of discussing who we are. People who love one another because we have been born again. And it is the word of Christ that is the milk for the babes born in Christ. Now we get a different description of the same people, don't we? Look at verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone. Coming to him as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus is pictured, the Messiah is pictured as a living stone. Many times in the New Testament we find ourselves asking the question, have we heard this before? Have we seen this before? And of course in our text, Peter quite clearly answers the question by quoting from various Old Testament passages. He brings to realization the fact that from ancient days, the coming Messiah was pictured as a stone, a foundation stone upon which God's people would be built. But why a living stone, boys and girls? I mean, surely you've played in your backyard or you've played in a playground and you've found a stone or a rock. And it's seemingly the least likely thing ever that you would call living. It just sits there. Rock-like. How is it then that Jesus is a living stone? Some scholars argue that this is likely a reference to the fact that Christ died and was raised. That he lives and that life is in him. And then notice what Peter says. This stone was indeed rejected by men, but chosen by God. And precious. Jesus indeed came to his own, and his own received him not, the scripture says. In fact, he was rejected by the leaders of Judaism at the time. 
That word there, rejected, is in a tense in the original language, which signifies that it continues to be the case. And doesn't it continue to be the case this day that this rejection of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, as Jesus walked among them in their streets, doesn't that kind of rejection happen all the time? In fact, perhaps in this very room today, the word of Christ will be preached. Christ will stand among us. Christ dressed in glorious robes, invisible to our eyes, yet present by His Spirit, will walk among these chairs, and He will be gloried at by some and rejected by others. Coming to Him as a living stone, however, Christians do not reject Him, but they receive Him. But notice this rejection among men is contrasted with what God says about the Messiah. What God says about Christ, chosen by God and precious, precious. Then verse five calls something else a stone. Notice verse five. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice, Christ is a stone, and believers are little stones. It's as if God is pictured here as having a grand building project. Christ, as we'll see in a moment, is the chief cornerstone, and believers are little stones. And notice, we're described as living stones. We live as well. In Christ, do we not? He was raised. We're united to him by faith. We are raised both spiritually and one day physically. Interestingly enough, this is the only place in Scripture where believers are called stones. Elsewhere, they're described as God's temple or God's house. Our brother read one of those this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Hebrews 3.6. In many places, the church of Jesus Christ is called God's house. Or God's temple. But Peter gives us a description of the building materials, doesn't he? Christ is the promised cornerstone. We, church, are brick by brick. A temple built on Christ. The Puritan Matthew Poole in his commentary on this passage writes these words, quote, The material house built of dead stones was but a type of of the spiritual house made up of lively stones built upon Christ, the living stone. And this he brings, the truth being always more excellent than the type, to heighten the privileges of the gospel church, end quote. What is he saying? He's saying, go back in your Old Testament and think about the temple. It had dead stones. It was a type. It was something that was to picture a greater reality to come. A place where God's presence would dwell. And now the temple is Christ, the living cornerstone. And we, his people, living stones, built together as a house of God. And isn't that what the text says? Notice verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Not a physical house, but a spiritual house. Boys and girls, what did the temple have within it? Priests who would serve. They would take turns and they would do various acts of worship. The chief act of worship being sacrifices. 
The regular killing of animals that the blood would provide a ceremonial covering for God's people that they may continue to abide in God's presence as his people in the land that he had given them. And now in our text, what does Peter say? You are being built as the temple. You are the priests and you are going to offer up not physical sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase there. You are being built up. Don't brush past the language there. Notice this is happening to us from the outside. We're not building the temple. We're not building the church. God is. It's happening to us by God. And notice this is corporate. We have a lot of discussion in our day about individual Christianity. But the scriptures here particularly point to the fact that Christ is the cornerstone and the building project is the grand spiritual temple or the church that God is building. And this is a corporate project. The scriptures, particularly the New Testament, know nothing of individual Christianity. The scriptures as a whole know nothing about a personal walk with Christ divorced from God's grand building project. And this even goes beyond local church membership, although that's certainly an implication in various texts of scripture. This speaks to the reality that God is taking people from every nation and tribe and tongue and he's building the walls of his glorious spiritual temple and he is living among us. It's very hard, perhaps, in the Western world to think in our day of a corporate building project. We're almost enculturated, aren't we, into thinking about my personal prayer life, my personal Bible reading, my personal evangelism plan, my personal walk with Christ. And again, these things are wonderful things to think about, but not in seclusion from the corporate building prog- uh, the building program of our God. In fact, more frequently than the individual discussion is the corporate discussion in the pages of the New Testament. We're being built together. And look at the description. And, and these are all borrowing from Old Testament language. A spiritual house. It's not wrong to say the church is the new temple. Full stop. The church is the new temple. The Old Testament temple, the building there, was a wonderful thing, but it was a type of a greater reality to come. That Christ is the temple, and He has made His people the temple, and we have become a holy priesthood. You know, in in our tradition in Christianity, we don't call the minister a priest. But it would probably be okay to call the minister a priest. As long as we said every other member who's a believer in the congregation is a priest as well. We are priests to our God. There's no longer a a priestly class. But Christ is the great high priest and we all are being built together to do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices. What are these sacrifices? Well, certainly if you read the pages of the New Testament, they are prayers. They are good works. They are worship. These are our spiritual sacrifices. Who can but forget Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. 
But notice verse 5 doesn't end there. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. Notice the rest of the verse. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want to linger there for just a moment. Notice that through Jesus Christ... In Jesus Christ, our spiritual sacrifices, our prayers, our works, our worship are acceptable to God. Let's drill down on that for just a moment. Because, believer, you are in Christ, you are enveloped in his robes of righteousness, you are covered with his shed blood, when you pray, your prayers are acceptable to God. They are a sweet aroma. When you do good works, even imperfectly, they are acceptable to God. When you worship, when you sing, in this place, on the Lord's Day, It is acceptable and pleasing to God because it comes through Christ. Why the building project? Because God is pleased to dwell among a people that he has redeemed and to receive the sweet sacrificial aroma of ongoing sacrifices offered up through Christ. Our confession of faith, the second London Confession of Faith in chapter 16, paragraph 6, says it this way, quote, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Analogies always fail us, but if you're a parent or a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher who has lovingly cared for children, do you not often prize the most those simple Crayola crayon drawings that your little children bring to you? They are the ones that make it on the fridge. Are they perfect? No, your computer could do much better. Picasso could do much better. But you don't want that on your fridge. There is an offering to you, a gift that is gloriously pleasing, even amidst all of its imperfections, because of the reality and relationship that surrounds it. Your prayers, your good works, your worship are spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Part of praying in faith, part of worshiping biblically, is beginning to remind yourself, as I pray, this prayer is acceptable because of Christ. As I sing, as imperfectly or less imperfectly, as I do it, it's received into the ears of God because of Christ. His temple is full of pleasing and acceptable sacrifices. Wasn't the case in the Old Covenant, was there? That wasn't the case. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament where there were imperfect sacrifices. God is building a house where in Christ His people are accepted. Your life, Christian, is accepted in the eyes of God because of Christ. 
Now in verse 6, Peter moves to demonstrate that it was prophesied all along that Christ would be this great stone. Look what he says in verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. You'll recall that regularly in the book of 1 Peter, Peter goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the Psalms. He goes to the prophets. He does so here. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Peter quotes from Isaiah 28:16. In that quotation in Isaiah, the message was a message of judgment on Ephraim because of unbelief. But similarly, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28:16 in Romans 9 and in Romans 10. In multiple places in the New Testament, the apostles, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, point us back to the Old Covenant Scriptures. It was promised all along that the grand building project that God was about to commence was a building project built on a cornerstone. So it shouldn't surprise you, readers of my letter, that Christ is that cornerstone, Peter would say. And notice, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. There are two descriptions of trust in Christ in this passage. Here, in verse 6, it's pictured as believing on him. If you go back a few verses to verse 4, it's pictured as coming to him. You know, trust in Christ is not simply believing a certain fact really hard enough. It's coming to him. It's hearing the facts. Christ died for sinners. You're a sinner. Christ offers his atoning work to cover your sins. He will save you. He calls you to repent of sin, to turn away from it, and to embrace him. It's a set of beliefs. But the scripture would also have us to understand that it's, it's actually a set of beliefs with an action. It's, it's coming to him. It's coming to him. This really is what saving faith is. Have you come to Christ? Yes, there are certain facts about Jesus that you're called to believe. He lived a perfect life, that he died for sins, that he was raised. That he's the only hope of eternal salvation. But are you coming to him? (laughs) A question for those of you wrestling with assurance of faith is not so much, do I believe the facts hard enough? But have I heard the facts? And have I run to Christ? Notice this cornerstone in Isaiah and in First Peter is pictured as precious. Look at verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Various English translations render this differently. Here in our text, it's He is precious. That is Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation. Boys and girls, when you build a house, a big building, sometimes you have a cornerstone. It's it's a big stone that a lot of the rest of the building rests on. Actually, some of you may have heard sort of the idea that the cornerstone is sort of the center of a top arch. And that may be, but that's not really the image that Peter has in our text. A cornerstone. The weight of the building rests on him. And therefore, he's precious. 
Other translations render that word as honor. You could do it. And so then the text would become something like this. Therefore, to you who believe, there is honor versus shame. Because, as we'll see in our next few verses, some will trip over the cornerstone. They're not building on him. They're tripping over him. Verse 7, Peter quotes from Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah again. Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Notice here, unbelievers stumble over Christ, the cornerstone, but believers are built up on him. And they stumble, the rest of the verse says, because they're disobedient to the word. When you hear the word of Christ, we call it the gospel, the good news. But when you hear the offer of Christ, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not a call primarily for you to do something. It is the announcement of what God and Christ has done. And of course it comes with an implied call to do something, to receive the one that is offered. But the gospel is an offering of Christ. Christ is offered to you, sinner. That's the gospel. Christ is offered to you. Many Hear that message and they stumble over it. There's a word picture here, isn't there? You ever been to a construction site? There's a lot of things to trip over. Imagine going to a massive construction site and the chief cornerstone. Instead of picking up board and hammer and nail and building upon it, you trip over it. You reject it. You refuse to build on it. That's what's described here of unbelievers. And notice the next phrase. They stumble being disobedient to the word. They don't obey the word. They don't receive the Christ offered in the word. But notice the rest of the verse to which they also were appointed. Here we have a discussion of God's election. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on this passage says it very helpfully. He says, those who disbelieve stumble over the stone who is Christ. They stumble over Christ because they refuse to believe in him and obey him. People who stumble and disobey are responsible for their refusal to trust in Christ. And yet God has appointed without himself being morally responsible for the sin of unbelievers that they will both disobey and stumble. And this is a theme that many in the church of Christ reject, and yet it's everywhere in the New Testament. The fact that people believe because in God's sheer mercy and grace, he's drawn them to Christ. He's caused them to be born again, and and in their regeneration, they hear of the gospel, and they choose willingly to cry out to Christ for the first time in faith. But this theme is everywhere. Acts 1-7, Acts 13-47 and 48. Who can forget that passage? The gospel is being preached and the text literally says, and those who were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, God's election of a people is not a dress that we wear to show off our wonderful choice. God's election is a reminder that I would have said no as well unless God had given me life in Christ. 
Listen, Christian, you aren't here today because you were wiser than everyone else when you heard the gospel. You're not here today. When you come to the Lord's Supper table, you're not coming to the table because you added the final 1% of Christ's sacrifice. He did all the work and now all you have to do is say yes. Even your saying yes has been granted to you by the triune God. So people stumble and it's their fault. They hear Christ and they say no. But a few hear Christ, and they build upon Him. And it's because in God's great mercy, this was granted to them to believe. So the church, the people of God, are a temple built on Christ. A temple built on Christ. There are many different applications we could make. But at least, let me say this, the Old Testament temple was a wonderful picture which was given to point all along to an even grander building that God was going to build. The temple was like a little child playing with one finger. Mary had a little lamb. The church is the full symphony of that same tune. So we aren't to look for new temples anymore. We aren't to assume that God's plan is to one day put another building in the Middle East. If you want a building, you want a temple, look around. He's built us together. Now notice verse 8 ends with to which they were also appointed. It was a part of God's election. But notice he gives us a contrast with that word in verse 9. There's another group that are involved in God's election. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation. This takes us to our second theme, doesn't it? The first was a temple built on Christ. The second one is a people chosen by God. Look there at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Have we seen those phrases before? Well, you may not remember. I may not remember when I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but each of those come right out of the Old Testament. Again, pictures in the Old Testament for a greater reality to come in the New Testament. For instance, a chosen generation is a theme that is used in Isaiah 43.20. God's people are a chosen people. Or how about royal priesthood? That theme is used in Exodus. Turn over to Exodus chapter 19 for just a moment. Exodus chapter 19. God, shortly before giving the law to the old covenant people, uses very interesting words in Exodus 19.6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Notice the verse that comes right before that, Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God speaking through Moses to Israel. The old covenant people of God. 
if you keep my covenant, if you obey, you will be to me a special people. What language does Peter use of Jews and Gentiles who are building on Christ? He has obeyed. So what are you? A chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. All three of those phrases, chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, they were all different ways described of the Israel of God in the Old Testament and now applied to the church. You ever wonder why the first thousand pages or so of the Bible are so lengthy before we get to Matthew 1.1 and we hear of Jesus by name? Because all of the Old Testament types, pictures, shadows are all wonderful things. But they're pictures of a greater reality. It's going to come a day when God's holy nation is not an ethnic people in one particular land with a real building made out of dead stones. But they're going to be a living people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And they're going to offer up sacrifices here and halfway across the world that are acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. They are a people chosen by God. And they're not limited to Gentiles, but Jews as well. Together, one chosen people. And notice we're described as a holy nation. There's a word that needs to be said here. The church of Jesus Christ is the nation. The church of Jesus Christ is the nation that the New Testament points to. As wonderful as our particular country is, the United States of America, we as a geopolitical nation are not that special people. As wonderful as any earthly kingdom may be, some live according to God's natural law better than others. Some are more civilized than others. Some have less murder than others. Some have more virtue than others throughout the history of mankind. But none of those earthly nations are the nation that this passage is talking about. So our goal shouldn't be, if we could just get America to be a little more Christian, all would be well. The building project of the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the United States of America. It is the nation of God as his church. The church is the nation, not a country state. And so while we are right to want to work for the good of the nations that we live in temporarily as pilgrims and exiles, that's not our home. So the goal of the church is not to try to take over governments. The goal of the church is to preach the gospel, to administer church discipline, to administer the sacraments, to offer up spiritual worship. And then, yes, while we live here, to pray for the good of the city around us. But the blessing is that if any nation becomes more and more and more rebellious against God and his law, it does not for one minute mean that God's building project is over. Don't put your hope in the governments of this world, in the princes of this world. 
Pray for them. Long for them to be godly. But when they're not, don't despair. Someone living under a communist regime today in a hole in the ground trying to worship God for fear of persecution has no less hope than you or I do sitting here just because their nation hates God. And if one day this nation turns on the Christians, this nation says, you cannot worship your God, we will gather in the holes of this land, and we will worship our God, and they will not take that away from us, and we have every bit as much hope then as we do now. Because God is not building the United States of America. God is not building Great Britain. God is not building Zimbabwe. God is building a spiritual house. And we are pleased to have the freedoms that we have in this country. Let us not think that our hope rests in Washington, D.C. or Richmond, Virginia. Because the nation, the nation of this text is what? The church. It's the church. Notice there's a purpose. Verse 10 that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. There's a purpose in all of this, being a temple built on Christ and being a people chosen by God. It is the proclamation of the gospel and the true worship of God. That's the purpose. Now let's close with three transitions, and they're right in the text. Three transitions. Peter says in verses 9 and 10 that we have gone from, quote, darkness into marvelous light. He says, secondly, that we've gone from being not a people to being a people of God. And he says we have gone from not having obtained mercy to having obtained mercy. You want to know what a Christian is? A Christian is a person who was walking in darkness of self and sin, living bent against God. And the marvelous light of who God is in the face of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation in his death alone has pierced their soul and they've moved from darkness into light. They didn't used to be God's people. They were outside this building project and this holy nation. They've become God's people. God calls them his people. The implications abound, don't they? Look at the person around you. If they're in Christ, they're God's person. Acts 20, 28, he bought them with his blood. And a Christian is one who used to live outside the mercy of God. They didn't want the mercy of God. They didn't think they were a sinner. They wanted their sin. But now, in the gospel, in the offer of Christ, they have obtained mercy. God has said of them, I will pardon your sins. I will not give you the justice that is deserved because I poured it out on my son in your stead. That's what a Christian is. And should it surprise us that here at this crescendo of who the church of Christ is, the word mercy is used? That was the very first theme, wasn't it? 
Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again. Friend, if you're here and you don't know Christ, there's all the mercy in the world for your sins to be had. If you run to Him, if you come to Him, the building project of God's people, priests in a nation, they're built on Christ alone. Without that cornerstone, there is no building and it all falls down. We are a new temple built on Christ made up of special people. I remember in my mid-twenties when building materials were a lot less expensive and when the real estate market was, well, a lot better than it is now. I was able to see a very small little box of a house built. And this is what would happen as it was being built. You buy the land, you go see the land, here's this little parcel of land, probably smaller than this room. And you go and then you see the foundation being laid. And I don't know if you've ever had a house built, but you find yourself showing up there a lot. Oh, what'd they do today? What'd the carpenters do? What'd the electricians do? Have the HVAC people showed up yet? (laughs) And you're watching step by step. Because that new house being built was important to you. It was important to me. I, quite frankly, wanted to make sure I was getting all I was paying for. So I'd go and I'd just stand there. I'd take pictures. I'd walk through it. Sometimes I maybe would have walked through it when maybe I wasn't supposed to, safety-wise. But each board, each wall, each story, you begin to see the building project because it's so important to you. And you're excited for all that's happening. Christian, is not the building project of this house of God not glorious when you watch it? Can you not see what our carpenter of a God is doing? Can you not but rejoice when you see the pieces coming together and he uses materials that wouldn't work anywhere else? We are the house of God built on Christ, special people. Let's pray. Living God, help us to glory in what you're doing. Help us to remember Christ, our cornerstone. We thank you for weaving the pages of the Old Testament together and causing us to see Christ in them all. We ask your blessing on your church, this local expression of it here in Hampton, Virginia, and the larger reality of it through time, through nation, through language. And we pray that we may have a renewed love for your temple and special people. In Jesus' name, amen.